It is legitimately confusing. But like back in the day, Steve Jobs said they were transitioning from PowerPC to Intel. And that was a very simple, relatively speaking, transition because PowerPC was the CPU. They pulled that out. They put an Intel CPU in and the rest of the machine just kept going. Like there was a lot of work to make that happen, but it just kept going. Whereas with Apple Silicon, they're not just pulling out Intel. They're pulling out everything. The way I tried to describe it was previous Macs were like a platter. You had your Intel CPU, your AMD GPU, you had the T2 chip that Apple tried to use to work around the stuff they couldn't do with the CPU and the GPU. Yeah. There was a separate RAM, there was separate, all these different things. And what Apple's doing is making a sandwich. And yes, part of that sandwich is like ARM. It's like the bacon. And it's not even ARM the chipset because ARM makes famously these Cortex CPUs that you can just license and produce. And Apple did that with the A4 and the A5. And a lot of companies do that. But then Apple got a license for the instruction set. So now they make their own CPUs mm -hmm. and they use ARM's instruction set because it's easier for now, at least, than making up their own whole instruction set. Welcome to Geared Up, brought to you by National Car Rental. I'm Andrew Edwards. I am John Rettinger. Geared Up is your weekly look at the world of consumer electronics and gadgets. And this week we have the return of what may be and is actually very likely to be the greatest guest, not just in the history of our show, but in the history of podcasts and just shows in general, TV, radio, any other show you can think of. Mr. Renee Ritchie, welcome back. Oh man, come on. Canadian. If I blush, I start to thaw. <laughs> <laughs> and before we gush over Renee, yeah. I do want to make a point that this is the first show since I have been the co-host that Andrew has gotten his audio working. First time <laughs> behind the scenes. So Andrew, congratulations to you, you don't for know actually what having it took. a working setup. You don't know what it took to make that happen. I am, as many people know, actually, I don't know how many people say something like this, but I am in the process of moving although everything's already been moved. Everything was moved over the course of three days, yet I just feel like everything's a disaster. And I am on like week three of the move. My entire house looks like a Best Buy warehouse exploded. Listen, Andrew, it, the reality is it's hard to move 17 80-inch TVs. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's tough. I mean, and, and 13 Teslas, it can take a right. lot of work and coordination. So listen, I think everybody can relate to that. It's terrible. I think everybody, everybody can understand. I was thinking either Jonathan Morrison or Justin C would have to come over and like redo and make things look nice. So the other thing about moving is, so we bought this house and it had an unfinished basement. So we decided to finish the basement when we moved in. That's cool. And what's cool is my wife's job is very noisy. She works with dogs. My job obviously requires quiet, which is why we had to edit out some barking a second ago. But what I forgot, like I was so happy about her having her own soundproof area, which will never affect me again when I'm doing videos and podcasts. But what I forgot was the process of finishing a basement is extremely loud. There's hammering and sawing and all sorts of other noises. So like I was thinking I'd get to the house and be able to turn a camera on and never have to put up with noise again. And it's been the, the exact opposite. Andrew, you have the most relatable problems, I think, for everybody listening. Right. Yeah, everybody, exactly. everybody gets this. <laughs> I'm a relatable guy. <laughs> so let's jump in. The other thing, the other big complaint I have, I was going to pay for the basement in one lump sum of money, but I'm still waiting for Bill Gates to send me my $100,000 in Bitcoin. That was how I was going to pay for this. I know that's 50,000 went out and I just, just got to wait. 
So for anybody that's listening, there was Twitter itself essentially got hacked. Hackers worked with evidently some folks inside of Twitter to sort of use a vulnerability in the internal platform where you can change email and take control of their accounts. And like a lot of the real famous folks out there were hacked. Elon Musk, Bill Gates, former President Obama, many, many more. And it was all the same scam. Hey, we support Bitcoin for the next whatever hour. Whatever Bitcoin you send to this wallet address will double it. And they supposedly made over $100,000, which is a wow. big deal. And I think a big discussion about security. Did you guys see the Brian Krebs article he wrote about this? Already? Yeah, it's like, it turns out, according to his theory or his sources, that it's a guy named Joseph from the UK who's going to school in Spain. And he's part of a SIM swapping group, people who try to socially engineer their way into phones and accounts, and uh, the people responsible for Jack Dorsey being hacked a couple of months ago. And this could be wrong. It could be a red herring or a fall guy or any of those things. But it sounds like based on what Krebs wrote that he, yeah, he wanted money from the Bitcoin thing, but he really wanted what they call OG Twitter handles, the ones that are like really short, like two characters or short character names and that are a way to flex on the internet or sell or just, you know, prestige. And that's what all of this was about. I mean, it, the usual hacks you see are like, usually get taken over then and it just goes like immediately racist. Like usually goes from like <laughs> hack to like, like racist stuff immediately. I mean, so that's a believable thing where it was like, hey, I'm going to get something out of this. I know it's not going to last for a long forever. And then Twitter suspended all verified accounts for a little while. So that was weird. I made a tweet just as a joke. I figured people would get it. Like, hey, send me one phone and I'll send you two. And I went and checked my Instagram DMs next morning and people did not realize that was a joke. I had about 300 messages from people asking where to send their phones to. Oh my God. So be careful out there on the internet, folks. Yeah. Yes. So uh, moral is I am not as funny as I think I am. No one is going to ask you just as a word of caution. No one is going to ask you to send them money, Bitcoin devices. Correct. And then they will send you double what you send them. Bill Gates, Obama, like this is just not something that's going to happen. So if you ever see something like that, just take it with a largely incredible grain of salt, please. If it's too good to be true, it usually is. But I think where people ran into problems was Mr. Beast's account got hacked. And that actually seemed like something that he would do. That's true. And it doesn't seem like that far-fetched for like Elon Musk either, right? Like he does crazy stuff out there. So this is an especially shrewd attack. And I apologize, by the way, I stepped in with my personal story in the middle or the beginning of our gushing for our guests today that we stopped short and did not get to properly, properly gush towards Mr. Rene Ritchie. That's true. You are correct. And we actually on my list is asking Rene how it's been going, starting a channel from scratch, going indie and uh, letting him kind of just talk about that process. It's been a while since both John and I started something new from scratch. And Renee, you yeah. came from iMore where you were for, were you there for over a decade? Yeah, I think like 12 years all told, 11, 12 years. Okay. I think a lot of people are looking to start channels and you're a very relatable story right now. Like you just started one in this climate. You know, what's that experience been like? What is it? What's been the struggles? What's been the successes? The highs and lows. So I think I might've mentioned this last time we chatted, but I gave my notice at the beginning of March and I gave a month's notice because if Apple held an event, because, you know, back then the world was still normal, I didn't want to leave anybody in the lurch. You know, I wanted to still be able to cover it for them. And then in the middle of March, all of this happened. And, you know, my last day was coming at the end of March and I was like, do I have the worst timing in history? Am I the stupidest 
person in history because I imagine that a lot of people would have a lot more time to watch, but we were beginning to see, you know, massive crawlback in any form of advertising or sponsorship or yeah. monetization or or anything, just any way that I had previously planned to earn a living going yeah. independent. And I'm not saying it would have been easier or if I would have changed my mind and just stayed with the company because we've seen all those big media companies have really struggled and they've you know, laid off a ton of people and downsized huge amounts. Mm -hmm. So maybe I would have been furloughed or laid off or fired. I, I, I don't know. So I, I don't have any regrets, but it, it was a very frightening and exciting last few months. <laughs> and it's going okay. I'm about halfway back to what my old channel was just in terms, and I know subscribers are just a vanity metric, but YouTube doesn't give you that many metrics. In terms of views, I was making videos for three years, so it'll take a long time it's sta to get staggering that you're already but. halfway after less than six months. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky in that a lot of, I think the audience that was most engaged came with me. You still occasionally get someone going, what happened to your old channel? Why aren't you uploading there anymore? And I, mm. you know, I send them the link and explain yeah. it to them again. But I think enough people came with me and they were engaged enough people that it really helped me uh, off the starter block. But I think another thing, not to discredit, well, it shouldn't discredit your work because it speaks to it. Not only did your most engaged people follow you, but you had a lot of your fellow creators letting people know, hey, yeah. you do not want to miss Renee's video. So please go subscribe to his new channel. Your peers wanted to make sure that the people who yeah. followed them still were able to see your content as well. Yeah. And you guys were so great. I did a, a new intro just to launch the channel. And you guys were so like in the middle of everything. You were so helpful. I really appreciate it. I think one thing people don't realize about tech, and a lot of people look at communities on the internet, you know, like the beauty community, for example, as, as sometimes being perceived as very toxic. I think tech, for the most part, is really the opposite of that. I think everybody tends to lift everybody else up more than there's pushing down. So I don't know if you noticed this, because I noticed this, especially a few years ago, is that in blogs, it was different. Because when yes. we started in the blogs, it was all about time on page mm -hmm. and getting people to link to you and link authority. So like, I'm not going to name and shame, but a lot of sites would just rewrite your article and try to bury the source yes. in any way they could so that people went to their page and stayed there. Where on YouTube, the browse function, the sidebar, the recommended, if like John does a great video, there's a chance I'll be in the sidebar of that video. And it just, I think it, it really makes YouTubers much more generous because it's a shared platform and everyone's work sort of raises everybody else's work. I agree with that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, as someone who is, who is in the blog world, I can, that's a totally different, that is more toxic, less supportive when it comes to written. But uh, the, the videos that I think are very true, I think everybody, I mean, it's, it's a rising tide, right? Like if Renee yeah. gets a decent amount of attention or videos on a topic that tends to raise the whole platform, you know, and as YouTubers, yeah. I feel like we're constantly struggling for acceptance anyway, that it just sort of raises everybody up. And there tends to be views for everyone out there. There's there's not really a limited amount. I mean, Marquez is going to get his and Lou's going to get his. But, you know, outside of kind of those folks, there's still plenty of eyeballs for every topic. And I think, Renee, what you've done is interesting. I'd like you to talk on this a little bit, too, is you found a very interesting niche in YouTube. So not, not, just, niche, not just Apple. There's a lot of folks, you know, that cover Apple. But your backgrounds, I think, made you uniquely positions for how you approach the videos. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your background and how that sort of shaped your perspective for the video side? Yeah, I mean, I started off working in a in communications. I was I started off well, in web development and graphic design, but I I ended up in marketing and product marketing. 
And I think like my main job there was translating between developers and salespeople so that the salespeople didn't try to sell anything we couldn't make and the developers didn't try to make anything we couldn't sell, which was a continual problem, yes. I think, in a lot of companies. And then when I went into media, it seemed like it was a similar problem where companies would make things but not always communicate them to the users and the users would want things and not always find a way to communicate those back to the company. And it, it seemed like a very similar translation job. So my thing was always like, it's always going to be a next iPhone. You know, until Apple gets super bored and just drops the mic and says, peace out, we're making hot tubs next year. <laughs> there's always going to be another iPhone. So that there's another iPhone wasn't as interesting to me as what new problems will it solve? Like, how are they going to make it interesting to other people? Who's supposed to buy it? You know, is it going to fit those requirements? The, the why and the what and all those things. So I've just, I've tried my best and people will call me an Apple apologist. And I think I'm still bad at that because my goal is never to apologize for them. They're this huge company. You know, they can take their licks and they deserve to take their licks. I want to explain it so that if you like what they do or you hate what they do, I can provide you the best background for that possible. So I was joking before. It's like, if you want to hate them, please hate them. Just hate them smart. Hate them for like really informed reasons. Agreed. And not because you think they stole your toaster. You know, that's right. So for me, what I always tell people about you is... There is a very much appreciated lack of hot take when it comes to your content. If you have an opinion, whether people agree with it or not, and obviously opinions are not typically fact, but also you are very fact-based, your takes are well-researched and informed. They're not just, what are these headphones that Apple just really, look how tiny these are. Everyone's going to lose these. No one's going to want these. You're going to look stupid with a little, like... There's like a million videos of that out there after a keynote. And then there's you, you'll take a couple hours, release a video, and there's none of that. It's just refreshing. It feels like I'm watching less of someone who's doing it just for the views and more someone who wants to legitimately educate me, which is much more appreciated. Oh, thank yeah. you. Renee, I want to ask you, so a new channel, what metrics are you concerned about? So, you know, subscribers is certainly a vanity metric, but it is important for sponsorships, right? That's usually the first number that sponsors look at. Is it sponsors? Is it views? Is it watch time? Like, what are the metrics as a new channel that are most important to you? And do those metrics determine the type of content that you put up? So I think there's sort of two. And I was lucky in that I kept my agency when I left. So Vector was repped by Standard. And when I left, I was repped by Standard. So I had existing relationships with the people there mm. and with the sponsors there. So what I really wanted to do was make sure I kept them happy because I had no idea how I would convert yeah. after you know starting a new channel. And I was lucky again that I kept that really engaged audience. So some of those have been harder than others. Some of them have been better than I expected. And I'm going to have to keep finding what the best sponsors are for my audience. And the other one is just, you know, I had to really go to school because I was driven to succeed at Mobile Nations. If my video does well or doesn't do well, that doesn't mean anything to them. They told me very frankly when Future took over that if I was to sit there and write scripts for why people should buy Nintendo videos and they embedded those in their own page with their own player and ran house ads on them, it would be way better for them. You know, <laughs> this YouTube thing was like a cute little indulgence. Yeah. <laughs> But when it's my thing, like I have to watch everything you do and everything Andrew does and people out there who haven't yet, go watch John's video about Apple and go watch Andrew on any of the few podcasts he's been on because there are decades of genius in what they tell you there. And I had to learn all that stuff 
like listening to how John tests titles and thumbnails and how Andrew <laughs> goes cross-platform and works with like all of that stuff I had to learn. So I, I've just been trying to soak that in and things like click-through rate now to me and not just like if a video takes off immediately, but the long tail and how it does over just over like a few, I've only done like three months of videos, but just seeing which ones last and all of that has been hugely educational. And I think for folks looking to start a new channel, if you look at Renee off of YouTube, maybe look at it, go to Twitter, look at the timeline. You can see somebody who's looking to improve. And I think that's something a lot of people can appreciate when they're starting a new channel. So myself included, I'm sure I can speak for Andrew too, is we don't know everything. Things are always changing, always areas we can improve on. I mean, you can see Renee talking to John Morrison about lighting, cameras, and, and I mean, how to improve that. And you, but you're talking to somebody who I've worked with, had the privilege of working with for a year you know, with John and seeing him work. And before he rolls a camera, he's usually spent about five hours setting up a shot, even if it's a six second shot in the video to get lighting and things just perfect. So asking those who are more knowledgeable in those fields to improve your craft, I think is something that a lot of creators can learn from and kind of being humble about it. You know, I've been doing this for 10 years. And there's a ton I don't know. And I still reach out to a lot of people for expertise and opinions. And I think when you start realizing that you don't know everything and trying to have an honest sense of where you are deficient and you look to improve it, I think that's when you can start to see real channel growth I think the audience notices it as well. I mean, look, you can see Renee's Quasar lights has got in the back. I mean, you've seen things change. That's because of Jonathan. <laughs> I see, but, but, you, but, but you've seen things change over three months and they're, they're little yeah. changes, but those little changes over time add up. And it's not just, I don't think it's that Renee's achieving success because you know he's a name in the space, but also he's worked his ass off to get there. And I think that's what people need to know who are starting a new channel, which is sort of the theme of this podcast, is that you need to be prepared to take your lumps and work your ass off. Yeah. It's not step one, upload video. Step three, you know, cash a million dollar check. <laughs> that step two is a real bear and takes a lot of work and dedication and a lot of rejection and a lot of trial. And I'll and just add to it. Error. Like, I've been lucky because you guys have been super generous with your time, but like, everyone's time is limited. And more than just asking you questions, I go and watch your stuff. Like, you've been so generous in explaining what you do on countless podcasts and videos, and anybody can go watch those. Because nobody has limitless time in the day just to field questions from everybody's and then work really hard. And I've noticed the harder you work, the more people are willing to engage with you to help you. But like if you haven't done any work yet and you start asking a million questions, literally nobody has time. I mean, <laughs> true. yeah, I mean, but you're respectful, right? So respectful people's time. Yeah. But I get these questions all the time from people like I want to do YouTube videos. Why do I want to be successful? It's like, well, there's not just like one. It's not just one thing, right? There's not one silver bullet. Otherwise, everybody would do it. The barriers to entry are low. The barriers to success are crazy high. Yeah. And like trying to explain to people that like YouTube, it's essentially it's a network good, right? Like if people, more people use it, the more value it has. But if you don't get people using it, there's really very little value in what you're doing. Very true. That was, that was my mini rant right there. And Andrew was very good at explaining the difference between quantity and quality, because I think those get conflated a lot. Yeah. And some other people have talked about that too. It's like, you can see a video that has a million views and nobody earned a penny off that video yeah. and a video that has the right thousand views and that person made a small fortune. Yeah, absolutely true. The dollar amounts in YouTube too, it's something that's always an issue of contention. And I don't know if it's different for new channels, but most of us do not support our families with AdSense. Yeah. You know, I think some of the, the larger ones do, but AdSense is more like, oh, that's a nice extra check this month. Yes. You know, but yeah. you certainly can't plan around it. So Renee, how do you plan your content with sponsors in mind while not letting the sponsors dictate the content? I think that's sort of been a topic that's come up again. You know, I think since Marquez did his, can you trust MKBHD style video? 
So I'm like super, super fortunate. And I didn't realize how privileged I was until I really went independent in that because I'm with an agency, they have policies in place that they've developed over the years, working with a bunch of podcasters first and then YouTubers. So you know who the sponsor is in advance. Yes. And you know they can look at the sponsor read that you do and give you feedback about that. And some of them have broad rules. Like there's some sponsors who say, we don't want to be attached to any political videos, but they never have fine-grained editorial input at all. It's just yeah. like, we want to be in these videos, not these videos, and that's it. So they don't know what the video I'm doing is. And I know who the sponsor is, but it doesn't relate to the video. And that means that for me... Because I was looking at Michael Fisher's stuff and I was looking at Marquez's video and a lot of the stuff you guys have talked about. I don't have to worry about that because it's more like a traditional media firewall. The video is never about the sponsor or vice versa. So it's, it's kept it really clean for me so far. That makes sense. Yeah. Mitigating sponsors, I think, is tough for a lot yeah. of creators. And there's a lot of inherent dishonesty in it. I mean, even look at this week. So a lot of people had a Vivo video that went up, right? X50 Pro is that sort of big hot topic. We had one went up. A lot of videos went up exactly the same time, and a lot of them did not have sponsor disclosures. And it makes everybody look bad. It makes the industry look bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so Andrew, how do you do it, right? So how do you deal with sponsors and the need to have sponsors, obviously, because that's how you support your family, but also sort of keeping the editorial integrity of the content? Yeah. So I think the way I do it is pretty standard. I have a mixture of dedicated sponsors, which means... I'll do content about the company that is paying me. When I do those, my hard rule is that it will never be a review. So I can do a tutorial, I can do an unboxing, I can show people how certain features work, but I'm not going to endorse anything that I'm being directly paid for. Then there's the integration, which means this video is sponsored by so-and-so, but it's not necessarily about so-and-so, which is more what Renee does, yeah. by the way. Shout yeah. out to Renee for being the smoothest transition guy into sponsors. <laughs> Very it was so point. smooth, actually, in the beginning. I think I actually messaged you a couple of times because your transitions into sponsors were so smooth that I didn't even know that it was a sponsor. And then you change it up and now you begin your videos letting people know here's who the sponsor is. But yeah, thank like, you, FTC. We have a we have a big card in the beginning now. Right. He's <laughs> like, hey, and then if you want, you just hit this button and then your phone will go to sleep. Speaking of sleeping, Casper mattresses are great. <laughs> yeah. like, like, oh my God, <laughs> Renee. What, what just happened? Right. Well, no, so the lesson I learned, and I forget, I really, I'm really sorry, I forget who taught this to me, but it was early on that people hate being interrupted. Like in podcasts, it's fine because they're there for two hours. Right. But for video, it's so short that if you stop and say, and now I'm going to thank my sponsor, it doesn't matter if the sponsor is literally going to send them a check for $1,000, no strings attached. They're going to get angry that you interrupted them and maybe stop it before they get the $1,000. So right. I always put up the disclosure stuff, but I want to tell them what's awesome about it in the first few seconds, just on the chance that they actually want it. Sure. And I'll go into the rest of the spiel. No, and I think it's great the way you do it. So those are probably the my favorite ones to do because I can just do whatever content I want and I just include a little sponsor message. And again, I try to make it so that it doesn't come across that I am personally recommending something, but rather just explaining yeah. Here is what. That's the tricky one. Yeah. I don't want it to come across as I'm endorsing it. I want it to come across as I'm telling you about it. And then you make the decision. Those are the two major things. I like what you said, John, about AdSense. Like, I always fight back. I've been someone who, for years, I fight back against the term YouTuber as a job, as an aspiration. As do I. 
And one of the things that I always look at for people who are new is when they're so excited that they're approved for monetization. Because the approval, you have to have, I believe, 4,000 hours of watch time and 1,000 subscribers. If you have 4,000 hours of watch time and you get approved for monetization, that's a very little amount of money that you're excited about. Maybe you'll be making five bucks a month. Like, I know it's a little bit of like an achievement that you've unlocked in your journey, but (laughs) I feel like when you want to be a YouTuber, you're so focused on these YouTube achievements and so much less on running a successful business achievements. And I always feel like it's much better to spend your time learning how to make $100,000 rather than learning how to get 100,000 subscribers. That's just my way of looking at running any business. And just because we're making videos on a platform, the platform shouldn't be the be-all, end-all to your strategy for long-term success. Yeah, it's marketing unemployment. Yeah, very much agree. All right, let's move on to some tech news. We will be talking, by the way, we are talking Apple stuff later in the show. We have Renee here, obviously. But before we get into that, I want to follow <laughs> I up heard of Apple. on something. John, I want to go back to something you said a couple of weeks ago, because I, I don't remember exactly what your prediction was. All right. It was regarding the pricing of the PS5 versus the Xbox Series X. Can you just remind yes. us what your prediction was? Okay. So let me give a little bit of background. Sony does some things very well certainly PlayStation being among them, but they've also had some missteps. The core of Sony's business is cameras, camera sensors. They don't even make their own TVs anymore. They're really just LG panels with Sony's name on them. And PlayStation with some other product lines kind of in between. And if you look at Sony's market cap, you can have access to their quarterly statements. You can see how much money they have. They certainly have plenty of money on hand. They are competing against a juggernaut with Microsoft. And I'll give the real quick breakdown here. Microsoft, who didn't balk at, I believe, paying, what, $2 billion to Nokia, essentially writing off that loss, has the ability and the market cap and the cash on hand to take a significant loss on the Xbox Series X, sell it for a loss, a huge loss, and then make that up down the road to win this console wars. They lost the current gen going on right now because they pushed Connect foolishly. They won the previous generation when Sony priced the PS3 too high. And then the first generation was kind of just a first foray in there. So my prediction was that Microsoft was going to undercut drastically the pricing of the PS5. And I would expect we see the pricing of the PS5 first before we see the pricing of the Series X. And I think Sony is going to price their console at $500. And I expect Microsoft to price theirs at $400. Okay. So I want to give a quick update, some news Okay, that I thought was interesting that tied into what you were saying. So Microsoft, as of yesterday, announced they were canceling manufacturing of the Xbox One X and the Xbox One S all digital version. So the Xbox One X is the current most powerful console, shipping console in the world, or I guess it was because it's not shipping anymore. Six teraflops, that was the Xbox One X, $500, so $499. And then the Xbox One S All Digital Edition is an Xbox One S with no disk drive in it. So all the games you would yeah. play on it would be just digital. That is also no longer being manufactured. So as of today, they are only manufacturing the Xbox One S. Interesting because I was wondering, how are they going to keep the Xbox One S and X in manufacturing while also releasing a Series X with the X being 
Sorry, there's so many letters here. Yeah, the Xbox the One names in the world. Right, the Xbox <laughs> One X at five hundred dollars. If John is saying the Xbox Series X will be four hundred, then what are they going to do with the X? Well, part of that just got answered. The X is just gone now, so that opens up. They have one console currently shipping that sells for two hundred and forty nine dollars. They could lower the price of that with the next generation. Easily have a four hundred dollar console in there. Mm-hmm. It seems like the building blocks are being put in place for your prediction to come true. Yeah, it makes sense for Microsoft. Now, who knows what's going to happen, but it makes sense for Microsoft to do it. And also, it would make sense that even if the software is not complete, I would imagine the Series X and the PS5 is hardware complete, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they know what the specs are. So I know sometimes I get, I get way too businessy on these podcasts. It's not why people are listen, listening. But economies of scale is at play here, right? The first console that comes off the assembly line is probably a billion dollar console or thereabouts yeah. for all the R&D costs that went in. But everyone after that costs less. So if they're stopping assembly lines and stopping production, those people are getting used for something, right? There's something being made and manufactured. If they can get a head start on this and start True. manufacturing early, get those economies to scale up as high and have as many consoles as possible for what I imagine will be a very high demand holiday launch then they're recouping their expected losses much earlier. You can say what you will about Microsoft, but they're no dummies. They are run by very smart people with very big plans. So that would make sense to me. And maybe my, my pricing might be off, but I still think that the Xbox will come in lower than the PS5. Now, there's still the rumor of an Xbox Series S mm-hmm. as well, which would be a lower cost next generation console. No announcements there yet, but one other big Microsoft announcement that impressed me as well. Aside from hardware, they also are going to be launching something called xCloud, which is their gaming streaming service. So you'll be able to basically play Xbox titles that you own on pretty much any hardware you have, whether it's a PC, I think even Mac, iPhone, Android. They announced that if you are a member of Game Pass Ultimate, then xCloud is just going to be included for free. So you pay them $15 a month, you have access to over 100 digital games that you can play on any device at any time. So not only are they coming for Sony, but now they're coming for Google with Stadia, which by the way, I've been paying for, for I just realized for five months and I've never used it one time. So note to self, cancel. So you're an average Stadia customer, you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I'm the one that's the $1 billion, have never used it. I'm very intrigued by what's happening in the gaming space at the end of this year, especially seeing the moves Microsoft is making in both hardware and streaming. Renee, do you play games? You know, I used to. I don't have as much time as I, as I did back then, so I don't play a lot anymore. I had both the previous generation consoles. I don't know if I'll end up with both or neither or the next generation ones. But the online part is so fascinating to me because... Stadia just had their update event and people were both loving it and dunking on it because what is the real strategy there? And with Google, you're never certain. And and, and xCloud, all these things, they're so dependent on infrastructure. And we've just been shown that one pandemic will get all the providers down ramping your bit rate Mm -hmm. to like three bits a second. Like your Netflix is 320p right now. (laughs) So like it's both the best and worst. It's the same thing with the advertising we're talking about. We have unlimited attention for stuff, but the capacity is not there to drive it. And that makes it so interesting to me. Like, will it be a great experience? It sounds great. They've been promising us this for 
a decade. It's like the future that's always coming and never arriving because the infrastructure, like maybe in South Korea, it's there. In Japan, it's fantastic. But North America has traditionally been so bad at yes. not even yeah. last yard, but sometimes last mile that I want to actually play it and experience it before I give it any credit at this point. Let me ask you this question. I was wondering how xCloud would function on an iOS device. The reason yeah. being is on Android, there's no problem releasing an app that allows you to then access through a subscription a bunch of other gaming titles. Mm-hmm. And it seems that Apple does not allow that. I don't know if there's yeah. been changes recently with iOS 14 or new developer rules. Have you heard anything about that? I mean, we saw Steam go through that when they were trying to get their app. Yes. And that was just local play. That wasn't even streaming play. And behind the scenes, apparently Microsoft and Apple are negotiating. But this is one of those things where I think Apple thinks they're in the right, but the world is going to step on them really, really heavily if they don't sort of preemptively start being more flexible about some of these things. And by the world, I mean the EU, because the EU just doesn't play. Mm. Like, you know, they they yeah. have a very and they have a very different definition for abusive behavior than the US does. Good and bad. Like the US just wants lowest price possible and the EU wants most competition possible. And those are very, very different things. Because lowest price can destroy competition and most competition can inflate prices, like counterintuitively. But I think it would behoove Apple, like it's not 10 years ago. 10 years ago, they were very different environments. I pay, you guys know that we paid like 45 bucks for a sticky notes app on our Palm and Windows mobile devices. (laughs) The world was so different. It would behoove Apple to get out in front of this and make new, very clear, very concise rules where they treat digital goods more closely to how they've always treated physical goods. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And afterwards, we're going to talk about iOS 13.6 being released this week, as well as Apple Silicon Max. That is coming up next on Geared Up. Welcome back to Geared Up, brought to you by National Car Rental. I'm Andrew Edwards, and it is now time for the National Car Rental Story of the Week. As you know, Geared Up is sponsored by National Car Rental. And if you don't know, I also do a show with National Car Rental on YouTube called technically speaking, where I bring you the latest, my picks for the best tech for business travel, whether you're business traveling or even whether you're going for leisure travel, there's a lot of tech out there that can make your travel more efficient or even more fun. You can check these episodes out at the nationalcar.com control center or go to youtube.com slash national car rent. The latest tech puts you in the driver's seat. National Car Rentals Emerald Club will keep you there. Once again, big thank you to National Car Rental for sponsoring Geared Up. All right, let's jump into some Apple news. First, this week, iOS 13.6 was released, which I think is the first, is this the first point six ever that we've seen from Apple? I don't know if it's the first. It might be the second, because I remember there was another really torturous iOS release that they, <laughs> it's, that they it's went to rare. back in the day. Yeah, it's a, very It's rare. rare. One of the big features is the addition of car key support, which is interesting because this was a feature announced in the WWDC keynote during the iOS 14 portion, but it's a feature we're getting before the release of iOS 14, which is potentially unprecedented. I don't remember anything similar to where Apple announces a major feature when talking about the next major version of an operating system, but then says, hey, we're going to actually include this very shortly for you with the currently shipping version. So CarKey basically allows you to use your iPhone 
as a key for your car to both lock, unlock, and drive. And if I'm not mistaken, there's only one vehicle so far that will be supported at launch. Is that correct? I believe it's a BMW. Yeah, the BMW BMW 5 Series. And I will say this earlier version of car key is perhaps the most annoying version of car key that we'll ever see because it requires (laughs) essentially physical contact utilizing NFC. Like you have to actually touch the phone to the door. It doesn't work like uh, Tesla's virtual car key or a Volvo and Polestar are doing. And then after you've in your car, you have to physically take your phone and put it on top of a wireless charger to do it. So I'm not so sure how much easier that is than a regular key, but it is a nice step forward for what car key will eventually become. Yeah. You know, when things like the U1 chip maybe actually have, have more use cases for them. The other thing, I don't know if this is part of the current version. Well, actually, it does say that the current version. So one question I saw a lot on Twitter was... Well, what if your phone dies? Like if you have a Tesla, like I know, John, you have one, I have one. If our phones die, we have the key card as a backup, hopefully, in our wait, wallet. Wait, wait, hold on. You have one? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say you have one. <laughs> we ha- your Teslas we- <laughs> have Teslas, sir. <laughs> I have two. I have two in my driveway, but <laughs> my, wife, my wife claims one, so I have one. <laughs> but if our phones die, we're pretty much done unless we have the key card, or we can find yeah. a charge somewhere. The cool thing about car key implementation is that if your phone dies, you can still use it with car key for an additional five hours. So once it's dead, five hours still of usage, which is cool. Yeah. I find this whole argument that people like to make of like, with, especially with Tesla, what, what if I lose my phone? I'm like, the cat argument is like, what if you lose your key? Yeah. Like your phone, you can go to a store and get another phone and download draft and be fine with the key. You know, or use your wife's phone or somebody else's phone. I mean, that right. argument, that argument to me is, is, is ridiculous. People are sort of looking to nitpick on you. What technology. if you lose the car? I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> and what happens? It's a, it's a silly argument, I think, to make. But it is nice that even if the phone dies, you still do get that access to the little bit of power that device still has left. Apple has now released a new daily news podcast exclusive to Apple Podcasts, which is interesting because Apple has always seemed to be more leaning towards the openness of podcasting, certainly throughout its history of supporting podcasts. But now they have a show that's exclusive to them and their podcast app, along with new Apple News audio stories, if you're a News Plus subscriber. Oh, so it does turn out that the podcast isn't exclusive. You can go to Overcast or to Pocket Cast and load it up too. It's just, it's the news, those 20 news features a week that aren't even in the podcast app. Those are just in the news app, which is so okay. curious to me. Like, does it want to hmm. be audible? I don't know yet. <laughs> but you do need a News Plus subscription. Is that correct? No, I believe the... And I don't know if it's weekly or daily now. I'm so confused about this because it's also US... Like the 20 news shows are US only, but the podcast seems to be like international, but still US focused. So like it's it's a very strange rollout to me. But like yeah. you, can just, you can just go to the RSS feed and put it in Overcast and it works. Okay, so News Today is the podcast. It's definitely yeah. daily. I just took a look. It launched Wednesday, okay. and they already have Thursday and Friday episodes up there. So every weekday. It's basically a daily show that talks about the news of the day. Separate, as Renee said, from the Apple News narrated stories. They're professionally narrated mm-hmm. versions of what Apple says are the best reads or the best news stories of Apple News+. Plus. 
And actually, I'm looking at the press release here produced by Apple News editors as part of your Apple News Plus subscription. Okay. So Apple News Today, the podcast is free. No subscription needed other than the free podcast subscription. Yeah. But the Apple News Plus audio stories are part of your News Plus subscription, which is, is that 10 bucks a month? 9.99? Yeah. And they're basically dramatic reads of like a Vanity Fair article or a McLean's article. They just have a professional narrate, which to me is like, this could be either fine or really cringe, depending <laughs> on how, like, but the thing I thought that was really interesting is when they talked about the Daily News show, there are a bunch of Daily News updates. Yes. But Apple is really leaning on the journalism part of this. Like, I think they have the Steve Jobsian belief that they can help rescue journalism. And that's sort of manifested here where they, they're not going to talk about the news. They're talking about the journalism that went into mm. the news. So they want to credit the people who made it and talk about the process and the reporting, which is very different than like a highlights show where you don't right. you don't even know sometimes what the source was or whether which stories were real or not. That is interesting. No, you're right. That's a different take than like the Daily New or the New York Times, the Daily Show or the Wall Street Journal's the Daily Show called the Journal. They've also launched local news in a few cities: San Francisco, Los Angeles, Houston, and New York. So they have specific local news areas in Apple News. Basically, it looks like they're trying to get people to use Apple News a little more and maybe even subscribe to News Plus, which if I were a betting man and I were to take all of Apple services and decide which one has the least interest from the general population, I would say Apple News Plus is the one that's 100%. struggling above all others. But it's so weird because like you look at Apple Music and you look at TV Plus and those rolled out to like 100 countries day one. I think Apple Music's up to 150 countries, almost mm -hmm. all the same content. And News Plus started in like four countries, is still in four countries. The licensing for, I think people like think that TV licensing and music licensing is hard. I can't even imagine how hard newspaper article, that kind of stuff licensing is uh, because it has not yeah. grown. And like you hear the New York Times pulling out already. Yeah. This must be like the worst nightmare content licensing deal they've ever gotten into. How do they save this? What do they do? Like, is audio enough? I feel like we're in a world where news is so, it's everywhere now. You open Facebook, yeah. it's all people linking to news, Twitter. So paying for news, it seems that to a lot of people, at least, if you're going to pay $10 for news, you're going to pay that to the New York Times to get their digital subscription versus Apple News Plus, where you're not sure on a day-to-day -day basis what sources Although you're going to get. They'd argue it's the magazine. Like the news is still mostly free. It's the magazine, the features that the mm, ten dollars yeah. is supposed to cover. But it's it's the same thing. It's like and it's the same thing as video and and blogs. Like everything. For a while, everyone was on the street corner yelling, you know, hear all about it, hear all about it. Yeah. And you would buy piecemeal. And so you had to yell. And then for a brief moment, there was like actual newspapers and magazines with subscriptions and albums and everyone bought based on the content. And you could produce enterprise journalism because it was being paid for by the uh, classified ads and by the, the page three trash. Like that's paid the bills and you use that money to produce journalism. But YouTube and Facebook and Twitter have algorithmically decomposed everything again <laughs> and you is like valueless. And now there's yeah. exponentially more of us. There's literally millions of us on every street corner screaming for attention <laughs> and people don't see any value in it anymore. Right. I think that's a very fair assessment. Yeah. I don't know what they can do to fix Apple News Plus in particular. I'm glad it exists. I'm glad mm -hmm. someone's trying to do something about journalism in general, but 
that's a tough one. Let's switch over to, I think my favorite video of the week was Renee Ritchie ah. <laughs> explaining to people. Actually, I didn't see the one you published today yet, but yesterday, explaining to people what Apple Silicon Macs are, what it means, and more importantly, what it doesn't mean. I've seen a lot of people, I said on day one, yeah. don't call it an ARM Mac. You're really selling it short if you're yeah. just focusing on the architecture of the processor. There's a lot more going on here, but I only tried to say that in like one or two tweets, whereas Renee put out a full video explaining <laughs> really what's going on. And I think it's important It's important enough to talk about here. I'm gonna, Renee, I'm going to let you take the floor for a minute. In a nutshell, can you summarize the idea of an ARM Mac versus what Apple Silicon Mac really is going to mean? Yeah, for sure. So I, I think it, it is legitimately confusing. But like back in the day, Steve Jobs said they were transitioning from PowerPC to Intel. And that was a very simple, relatively speaking, transition because PowerPC was the CPU. They pulled yeah. that out. They put an Intel CPU in and the rest of the machine just kept going. Like there was a lot of work to make that happen, but it just kept going. Whereas with Apple Silicon, they're not just pulling out Intel. They're pulling out everything. The way I tried to describe it was previous Macs were like a platter. You had your Intel CPU, your AMD GPU, you had the T2 chip that Apple tried to use to work around the stuff they couldn't do with the CPU and the GPU. Yeah. There was a separate RAM, there was separate, all these different things. And what Apple's doing is making a sandwich. And yes, part of that sandwich is like ARM. It's like the bacon. And it's not even ARM the chipset because ARM makes famously these Cortex CPUs that you can just license and produce. And Apple did that with the A4 and the A5. And a lot of companies do that. But then Apple got a license for the instruction set. So now they make their own CPUs mm -hmm. and they use ARM's instruction set because it's easier for now, at least, than making up their own whole instruction set. But everything else is, even now, the GPU that Apple is making is custom. They used to use PowerVR for the last three years since uh, iPhone 10 and iPhone 8, been custom GPUs. They make the ANE, the Apple Neural Engine, which is in there as well. They make accelerators. Like your Mac is way better at rendering H.265 than similar Windows computers because Apple doesn't even send that to AMD. They do that on the T2 chip because they have built-in accelerators for those things. And we've already seen that Apple Silicon Macs are gonna have accelerators for hypervisor, so virtual machines work better. And I think that was what tipped their hand because them designing the silicon means that any feature they wanna build or any feature they wanna make run really well, like let's say they want Final Cut Pro to be even faster than it is, they'll build in ProRes accelerators like you see on the Afterburner yep. card or Logic, or like for Xcode, they might build in some special math accelerators or like they're already doing with the AMX, the Apple Machine Learning Accelerators. But it could be anything, like if they want to get into gaming one day, they could build in special metal accelerators that makes the gaming, we talked about the PS3 and the, and the Xbox 4, they're doing SOCs as well because they're building that graphics to support exactly mm -hmm. what they want to do with the game. It feels silly saying the sky's the limit, but they're making their own computer now down to like every part of it. And it just means they can finally make the exact computers they want to make. Yep. Very well said. <laughs> yes, Exactly. And so it's about more than just the chip, the processor yeah. portion of the chip. It's really, they are making everything. I want to talk about for a moment, the practical everyday average consumer benefits of what this means. So obviously that was very technical, but for the average person who wants to buy a MacBook or MacBook Pro a year from now, let's say, 
What does something like this mean for them? What are some benefits or potential benefits in the future versus today? So I think a really good example is the 12-inch MacBook that got introduced the same year as the iPad Pro. And it used the Intel Core M platform. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was super pretty. It was super light. It was super portable. But it struggled with anything that had any sort of high load in it. So even like you have your iMac or your PC gaming machine and you just want a light computer to take with you, but you want to render out your family videos or you want to like work on a song or you have like some heavy, like a game you want to play. It just choked. And meanwhile, the iPad Pro would do like three streams of 4K. (laughs) Like it, it just, it wasn't even close. And they both had no fan. What it'll mean to people is that they'll have computers that run better quieter for longer because the battery life we're assuming is going to be better. Apple's gotten really good at managing battery life with those kinds of things. The problem with Intel is that when Apple designed all these current MacBooks, Intel was supposed to have shrunk down their process by a lot by now. And they just haven't done it. Like They're still not at 10 nanometer for most of their chips. They're starting to. Meanwhile, Taiwan Semiconductor is going down to five nanometer for Apple Mm -hmm. this year. And that just means that those chips take up more space and are hotter. And because they're not performing as well, Intel's throwing more cores into them, which makes them even bigger and even hotter. And then you see every YouTube thumbnail be like facepalm, burning Mac, burning (laughs) Mac. And that all goes away, like presumably, like Apple could screw this up. You know, it's possible they could screw this up. But what should happen is more like what we've seen with the iPad, where you get higher performance at cooler temperatures for longer battery life. And you get newer features faster. Like we still don't have Touch ID on all the Macs. Don't have Face ID on any Mac. Don't have like cellular on any Mac. Like we should be getting those features much faster. Tim Cook, I think was, he's very candid. Like you guys know this, when you talk to him, he's exactly like he is on stage. And he never said like, we're doing this for this one. He said, we want to make better Macs and there's no other way to make these better Macs. And I think everything that goes into making better Macs is what we're going to be getting. There you go. I think the lighter fanless, quieter, LTE or likely 5G as well, LTE and 5G connected max and battery power. Like those are all tangible benefit, day one benefits. If you upgrade from an Intel Mac or Intel portable Mac to a portable Apple Silicon Mac, those are day one benefits that you would, we're assuming are going to be there that you would instantly get to see and feel you know, a real difference, like a real upgrade just took place. Whereas, you know, a lot of times you buy a new Mac because a lot of people, hey, there's just a new one. Shiny. Upgrade to the latest. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. And um, maybe you get a little bit more screen real estate, like with the latest MacBook Pro. But other than that, I usually find it to be difficult to really find a different experience than what I'm what I'm upgrading yeah. from. Yeah. But this would be legitimately new experiences right out of the gate. Like there is a couple of people who it won't be great for, and at least for a while. And those are people who have very specific niche computing needs. Like if you use a 3D modeling program or like maybe some of the Adobe stuff that you struggle to get updated, even on Intel, they do like a token port every year or two. You're going to be on Intel for a while. And I think that's why Apple's still going to make a few Intel Macs. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like if you just bought a new Mac Pro, that's going to be a great computer for four or five years. But for like you said, the average everyday person, it's just going to be a better experience on that hardware. I would like an Apple Silicon card that I can just insert into my Mac Pro, which I know is not a thing, but. It might be though, like they were building that, right? When they knew about Apple Silicon. Can I ask True. a question about that? We, we filmed a video on the Apple Silicon computers. And one of the points that I brought up, the video is not live yet, was folks that 
bought the Mac Pros. Do you feel misled about that Mac Pro or do you regret it perhaps? So I think I have a very, the way I think about things is the way I wish a lot of people did. That's a weird thing. That sounds very conceited, but let me explain. When I buy something, I'm paying a price that I agreed to pay for it the day that I got it. Similar to, I picked up my Tesla Model Y, I think three weeks ago. And about three days ago, the price was reduced by $3,000. There's a lot of people outraged about that who recently bought one, in my opinion. The day I bought it, I said to myself, this is worth what I'm paying for what I'm getting in exchange for my money. So I never look backwards and say, hey, wait a minute, but what about, you know, why are you doing all this stuff today when yesterday you were doing this other thing and I agreed to do it yesterday versus today, especially in the world of technology. Technology is just always changing so quickly. You can't hang your hat on trying to time the market just right unless something just came out. If it just came out, other than that, you just never know. So I don't feel any sort of negativity about my purchase of the Mac Pro. It's just more being an enthusiast or a fan or whatever you want to call it and just always wanting to play with the new, newest and greatest stuff. No way. You can confirm Tim Cook is not coming to your house with a baseball bat and destroying your Mac Pro. Exactly. Yes. My Mac Pro will still work fine. I'm just curious how the transition on the Mac Pro specifically is going to go down. I might be completely wrong about this, but I'd love your opinions on it. My theory is that it took them this long to build it because they knew this transition was happening and that a modular Mac Pro makes even more sense in an Apple Silicon world where they can put Mm. their biggest, baddest SOC right in the center of that thing because they didn't just introduce AMD cards. They made this special box that the cards go into. And they made the accelerator card for Afterburner. And now they have a storage module. And even if these things aren't computers in traditional sense, I could easily see, oh, here's the Apple Silicon Mac Pro. And if you want more performance, we have an Afterburner card for Final Cut. We have one for Logic. We have one for compute operations. Maybe AMD still goes in one. You want more storage. You want more RAM. Here's a RAM card. You can put as many DIMMs as you want, and it plugs right into the SOC over super high bandwidth fiber cloth connectors. And it's the actual real purpose of that Mac Pro to begin with. Interesting. That's a very exciting proposition, I must say. Can the motherboard, I mean, from a technical standpoint, can the motherboard support a different architecture? I mean, if there is a... Apple Silicon card you can plug in that's a new processor? I mean, can that, will that function properly? I don't know if the motherboard can, but you might, like the way I saw it is that like people complained it was a $6,000 computer and I saw it as a $6,000 case that, you know, yeah, like, I agree it's that. an Apple case that Pixar or ILM buys and then yeah. for the next 10 years, they keep swapping parts inside. So even if you can't swap like the socket for the thing, maybe you can swap the whole backplane. Just change out the motherboard. Inter- oh, interesting. Yeah. That is I mean, you, you're right. They obviously knew this was coming when the, the Mac Pro came out. They didn't suddenly make a decision to switch to Apple Silicon and, and suddenly had it ready. But it, the timing of releasing the Mac Pro was interesting, at least. I yeah. thought. They could be jerks. Like, I could be wrong. They could be complete jerks and say, <laughs> ha that was the last big iron we're ever doing. If you want it now, it's going to be sitting next to the X-Serve at the old retirement home. Right. Suckers. All right. John, up next, we have a segment where we're talking with... TCL. They are new to the smartphone space. A lot of our listeners know them from the TV space where you and I have both covered their TVs extensively over the years. But now TCL is bringing the same type of value that they've brought to the TV world over to the smartphone space. 
Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, TCL has been, they're not, not new to the phone space. They've been making phones under other names for years, but now they're putting yes. those three letters on the back of devices mean a lot. So we wanted to talk to the expert to see, you know, how TCL got to this point. I know, Andrew, you've got several TCL TVs in your house. I've got a few. Yes. I just got one for my parents. So we've got Stefan here. He's a general manager of global marketing from TCL Communications. So Stefan, thank you for joining us. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And I'd love to hear from you sort of TCL story from televisions to making phones to finally putting their name on these devices. So yeah, this is quite a, an important step in our overall strategy as a company. In a way, TCL is not a new player on the smartphone market. We are in this business since more than 20 years, mainly through the Alcatel brand and through BlackBerry, also Palm. And we're doing quite a lot of white labels, so ODM out devices for which are carrier branded. So we have a lot of expertise when it comes about the technology, the R&D, the development, but also supply chain. And of course, the customer relationship, the channel relationship. So we're not a new player in the market. But however, what is new and uh, what is the first time is now that we bring TCL branded devices, so to say, to the market. And this in the big picture is such an important step because we have an overall strategy, which is called AI times IoT. TCL as a company is quite unique as a Chinese company. We are the only true consumer electronics company which has such a large portfolio yeah. and so many different product categories. Now to build this ecosystem and have all of this uh, talking together, of course, it makes most sense to have a mobile device at the center of it. You can use the TV to control your curtains, your lights, mm -hmm. or uh, all your other home appliance devices. But I think most natural is, of course, uh, the phone, which you have in your hand all the time. So this is technology-wise, is and for the value proposition, the offer is very, very important. And the second point why this is important, of course, is for the brand building. Mobile category is just helping us to do a much more accelerated brand building compared to the other devices. Yes, we are famous right now for TV, which is great. You know, yeah. this is a good place to start. But then, you know, sometimes it's a bit difficult that consumers will build an emotional connection with their refrigerator or with their washing machine, you know, maybe a little bit more. But with the mobile devices, definitely we have an opportunity here to, to have a faster brand building. That makes sense. How long has this been in the roadmap for TCL to get into their own branded phones? It's actually something we're trying to do or we plan to do since quite some time. It needed to have a good moment right now yeah. to come where are things coming together? And in fact, we are working on this project uh, since more than two years, very concrete with the brand strategy, but also with the product portfolio. The three things where we see like needed to come together that it makes sense because we didn't just want to bring another, let's call it Chinese smartphone to the market. Yeah. The three things we see like happening on the market, which helps to now uh, or makes perfectly sense to bring TCL is like, the first one, of course, is 5G coming to the market. Okay. So fast mobile internet, this is perfect for an entertainment proposition, mm. which is about uh, watching video, playing games, listening music, all of this. This is great with 5G. The second thing what we see is the IoT market. We are, in fact, a product company and we know how to build products. So we have a lot of IoT products and we see this market is growing very strongly. And this is where we see an opportunity to bring more products and bring this to the market. And coming back to Adding AI software mm -hmm. makes all of these little products, you know, more intelligent and more smart. 
talk to each other, but also, you know, we want to, of course, uh, enhance the features and the benefits for the users with it. And the third and probably most important factor is TCL has its own display manufacturing. You're kind of a display expert. And the whole opportunity now, which is coming with foldable and flexible displays, this is fantastic. You know, this will be disruptive on the market. We see this as a long-term opportunity. And you can now create new product form factors again. You know, yeah. I, I always say it like this, for the last eight to 10 years, we all have the same phone, more or less, right? Yeah. It looks the same. The no rec- it's a different colored rectangle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You know, some has a bit of a bigger display, a bit more cameras, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, we all have the same phone. Now, breaking out of that is helping us, of course, to create new products, again, new use cases. And looking back a bit, what we had with feature phones, where maybe you had a clamshell, something like a slider, a bar tab, you know, it was fun. And this is where we see an opportunity for TCL with these three big market trends that we can bring new innovations to the market, new use cases, and just surprise as well a little bit. And this is a long-term thing. It's not just a short-term step. So we take the time to build this here. Yeah, I mean, you guys showed off perhaps the coolest prototype or or design that I'd seen in years. I mean, Andrew chimed in too, but the rollable was something that was crazy. Absolutely. My main complaint about a lot of foldables is Once you fold them, you just have this thick brick that you have to fit in your pocket. But the unrollable, where you just kind of pull apart the display and it just stretches open while remaining fairly thin, I agree. That was uh, what was most impressive to me. And I do want to say, so for folks who are listening, there are a lot of choices when it comes to phones, right? You don't know what what to get. There's a lot of brands. They're all some sort of rectangles. I had a chance to play extensively, and actually I still have them check out the TCL 10 Pro and the 10L. And I've yeah. always been, and I've sort of very vocal about it. I've kind of been a display snob. I think if the display, that's what you do with everything on the phone. If it's a bad display, I don't care what the internals of the device are. It's, it's a bad experience. And the display looks like you'd expect from a company who made their reputation making displays. I mean, that, that's the best compliment that I can give. I mean, TCL built their reputation making really good displays. And those really good displays are now just in the smaller form factor and not powered by Roku. I should, I should say, but it's a beautiful display. And now people have more choice where they can pick the phone that's right for them. And Qualcomm's chipset enabling 5G at lower price points is awesome. And sort of being able to all these pieces coming together, these things used to be reserved for these $1,000 plus flagships are now available mid-market, and which would have been unheard of, I think, 12-ish months ago. So this is typically what we try to achieve with TCL. We're not going for the super premium market. Yeah. And in a way, we had a big, big success. It's a big success story when it comes about the TV business, right? And typically what you see is like we can offer, so to say, the latest technology, the new technology on the same or sometimes even better quality, but we can offer this at a more affordable price. So, of course, this is a bit of philosophy. We want to democratize technology. We want to bring this latest technology into more hands of the consumers and make everybody enjoy it. This is a success story when it comes to TV. And this is what we also try to replicate now on the phone side. This is why we call, we're going to look a little bit on this premium mid-segment. Okay? Mm-hmm. And we believe like this is one of the strengths of TCL that we, uh, that we have a lot of expertise to know how to build costs and value-driven devices. But still, the quality is very, very important. But yes, the TCL devices will be more expensive than the Alcatel devices we did so far. 
And then, you know, coming back to the display thing, this is our differentiator where we clearly want to do. It makes perfectly sense. This is our heritage. We know how to build displays. We have our own display manufacturing. This is where we can add value. Most of the devices that talk about camera, camera is absolutely critical. Uh, no any question, okay? But our heritage is coming from the display. We will make sure the cameras are at least on par in this. But the display, in fact, actually, the thing you're looking at five hours a day is the display. This is, is the one thing you use most on a smartphone. Yes, you take a lot of pictures, you do videos, etc. But actually, this is the thing you use most as a user. And this is where we want to bring, together with Next Vision, our, our technology, you know, which is sometimes a hardware component uh, in there to boost uh, the display performance, but also, again, with AI software to really deliver a better experience and have there a differentiator when it comes to the visual, so to say, experience. That makes sense. Uh, Seven, thank you for taking the time to join us. So you don't know, Stefan is all the way in China and we're able to yes. sort of do this, uh, do this recording. So thank you for taking the time. I'm not sure if you are up early or awake late, <laughs> but whichever one of those two are somewhere in the middle, we appreciate you taking the time to stop and uh, talk with us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. All right, we are back with Renee Ritchie and it's time for the lightning round. As I said earlier in the show, there's a lot of just little news stories happening that I know are of interest, but aren't so interesting that they require a full segment to talk about. So let's just go through them. One thing that I see a lot of people excited about, new emoji and <laughs> new Memoji pieces to further customize how you look are coming this fall. Are you guys heavy emoji users? Because whenever new emoji are announced, Twitter just blows up in positivity and happiness. It's the upgrade, right? It's like nobody upgrades when the dot zero comes out. When the dot one comes out with new emoji and everyone sees a little square box <laughs> on their Twitters, it. they upgrade immediately. Yes. Bubble tea is a part of this. It's important. I mean, there's a heart, like an anatomically correct heart as an emoji. Memoji, though, which is interesting, actually. So Memoji, I know so many people, at least in like the tech world, write off Memoji, yet... I see so many average people out there who love it. What's cool now is it's such a weird discussion because it's just a cartoon avatar of yourself, but there's so many more things they're adding this year that allow you to further customize yourself and just be more inclusionary, if you will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's so many more new hairstyles for people of color, for example that weren't there before. There's a few different ways to like have your face mask. Face mask, it's, it's a thing yeah. now. And Apple and isn't just like, And they model it around the beards. <laughs> like right, they took yeah, the time to model beard. it around the beards. <laughs> Which I'm sure took some, took some doing because yeah. you can't just throw it over there. But they have like different styles of face masks. They have do-rags now. Like they are, I'm going to give them credit for doing something to allow more people to express themselves through this, you know, seemingly cartoonish, no big deal, you know, feature that if you want to recreate yourself and you find that if you're one race, it's much easier to do than if you're another race. Yeah. That could be frustrating. And now they're, they're taking time to address this to make it easy, no matter who you are. John, are you laughing? Are you laughing at this? I am very much laughing at this. John, what does your Memoji look like? I don't think I've changed it since they very first launched. Um, <laughs> And I've had no reason to change it because I am a grown man <laughs> <laughs> with other priorities. No, I, <laughs> I don't mean to, to. Honestly, I just don't care. 
it's not that like I, I just like I don't care. Wow. I, don't, I, I, I hardly use it. I just I have, I have no interest in emojis whatsoever. Well, I'm going to send my emojis to you more regularly. I'm looking for the update. That's then. Okay. <laughs> Renee, how about you? I've seen your emoji around. Yeah, I use them. I'm not like a diehard Memoji person, but I think there's two sort of areas where they're good. One is some people just, they're very self-conscious and they're very socially awkward and they don't like having their actual face on things for a variety of reasons. Some, you know, psychological, some therapeutic, some because they're just, they don't like the way that they woke up. Like, there's just a variety of reasons. But also, you know, Apple's going big on AR, and this is one of the best ways to boil the water and make people comfortable with AR avatars. Because if you just told people you're suddenly in AR and like, oh, what's my God? But now they're like sitting there making goofy expressions with total face, like face tracking. It should be a disturbing thing for people, but they're too busy putting their Memoji mustaches on to really think about how <laughs> their face is being put into an artificial world. And I think, I don't think they intended it like that, but I think it's a very happy coincidence that it worked out that way for them. Yes. So new emoji, new Memoji customization coming this fall in iOS 14. Next topic, question from Trenton Marshall, Tech Rant on Twitter. Should Apple make a user upgradable desktop that is positioned between the Mac Mini and the Mac Pro that is not an all-in-one device like an iMac? Should they? Should they do this? I don't know that they need to do this. I'll let, let Renee answer that one. I mean, my thing is they should, but I don't think they will. I think they have a spreadsheet in Cupertino that says that's an enthusiast computer and it's low on their priority list. They'd much rather make computers that are much more mainstream, friendly, or premium pro positioned. I would love it if the Max, if the Apple Silicon let them do to Max what they did with iPads, and that is push the price down on the entry level as the mm -hmm. technology matures. But I think that'll always be consumer focused and not enthusiast focused. Yeah, I agree. Good way to look at it. So, But I want it. I really want yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So user upgradable would be more of the enthusiast thing. And Apple is a consumer electric, like they are consumer focused, yeah. almost consumer laser focused. They make appliances mostly. Yes. Next, where are the Apple Secure Video 4K cameras and where are the doorbells? So Apple Secure Video is something in as part of HomeKit that a camera device maker can include where the video will be stored in your iCloud account. It won't take up any of your iCloud storage space. And these are to compete with other things like Nest cameras and cameras that work with Alexa, et cetera. So these are smart home cameras. A lot of these other cameras from competing companies are, are 4K and 2K. And also video doorbells are just everywhere now, but none work with Apple Secure Video and HomeKit, at least in the US. There is one in the UK. Renee, I'm going to look at you. Do you have any insights So what's going on? I mean, on? I've ranted about this before, but I think that Apple's going, like Apple is incredibly focused, but the problem with focus is that, is that it's also tunnel vision. And yeah. they're so used to getting negative criticism that I think they discount any criticism as negative. Mm. And that's not good for them. And I think they have watched as Google and Amazon and Samsung have bought up most of the major home electronics automation equipment. 
you know, famously, they own all those things now. And it's not in there. It's not their priority to make them work with HomeKit. And Apple, meanwhile, has gotten rid of the one thing they made, which was a router. They did announce a new alliance, but an alliance, again, like you're going to be third or fourth on the priority list if you're part of an alliance. Mm. So I think Apple has to just totally reevaluate their home automation strategy. And I think it would behoove them to have a company like Filmmaker, doesn't have to be Apple, can be like a company like Beats or like FileMaker, sorry, that just makes this stuff so that Apple users always have access to the stuff in a timely fashion. Bravo. I appreciate that, that sentiment. Take that, Apple apologists. <laughs> Where's the Pixel 4a, John? What have you done? Listen, where is the Pixel 4a? No one can see where I'm looking at, where my head is, is looking at. I don't know where the Pixel 4a is. Somewhere deep in Mountain View uh, is my guess. Debating whether or not it should be released or, or not released. And I think the Pixel 4a is a tough phone to sell with the processor that I had to put in it, a sub-flagship processor, and rumors yep. that the Pixel 5 will go for the 765G chip from Qualcomm, what's the difference between That's the 4A and then the now lower processor Pixel 5? I'm not sure the 4A has a place, although I'm sure we'll see it. They leaked images of it on uh, Google's website. It looks exactly like a Pixel 4 with a fingerprint reader on the back and probably a plastic body. It is his most unexciting device they come up with. I know Pixel has a lot of fans. Google's hardware strategy is so disjointed and appears to be run by two almost completely separate companies yeah. that just meet at the very end. You know, it's the, what Renee talked about at the beginning, can engineers build something that sales can sell and a sale selling something that engineers can build. Mm. It's like they're not having that meeting until the very end. And when Google gets passed on the software front by makers like OnePlus, the better software experience, I think it's definitely time to reevaluate your place in the smartphone world. Renee, what do you think the Pixel's place is in the smartphone world today? No, I think... John's exactly right. Like I think over the last few years, Google got a new vice president of finance and it sounds like they want a, an iPhone. And the people who run the Pixel department, if someone is, because we heard stories about them saying, why is the battery so small at the end of the production cycle, which is like to me a huge alarm sign. But they just want a phone where they can dog food things. Like we put a notch on one, we put a hole punch on the other, we put like oh, we have this cool technology where you can wave your hands around. Let's shove that in there too. And then you have yeah. an engineering team that wants to make a low-cost device for, for developers. And those are three very different products. And I think that it shows that when you get the Pixel, you, it doesn't know what it wants to be. And I think there are a bunch of enthusiasts who just love that it's a Google experience, but the phone itself has no idea what it wants to be. And if Google doesn't know, how are we supposed to? I very much agree. Very true. Two more. Number one, Panos Panay and the Surface Duo. <laughs> Panos Panay. Panos Panay, leader of Surface at Microsoft, has been mm -hmm. sharing some images of himself using has supposedly been. the Surface Duo. Have you guys seen this? Yeah. Yes. Saw the picture. There's a couple pictures. We only see the back of the device. We don't see him using it. We don't see any video. Right. We don't see the display. Is he really using a Surface Duo? Is my question. Were they shot with a 12-inch MacBook FaceTime camera? <laughs> they are the worst potato <laughs> photos. It was not shot with a pixel. So the, the picture looks blurry, and it's him holding a device from the back. I guarantee you that is not a working phone. I, at least I think that is not a working phone. Is What's that a Lego point? duo? Did someone did Justin, did Justin <laughs> put together a Lego duo for him? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the point is. I don't know that it's generating any sort of hype other than it, it just looks silly. Last topic. This is going to be for John. 
Uh-oh. Tell us about what happened when you opened your DMs. <laughs> <laughs> I, as I, woke, I woke up this morning with a wonderful idea that I'm going to open my DMs for an hour and I'm just going to have conversations with a bunch of people and it's going to be awesome. It lasted 14 minutes <laughs> before I had to shut it down. And there were some wonderful comments and some, you know, really nice things people had to say. There was constructive criticism. You know, there was a respectful discussion. There was helpful questions. And then there were a lot of eggplant pictures. <laughs> and I'm not talking about actual eggplants that grow on the ground. There was like a <laughs> lot of people sending me their personal eggplants. Wow. Like a lot. Did you do the Alana thing minutes. where you sent people back a slightly larger version of what they sent you? <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I didn't. I did, it was more of, I was, listen, I, I can't imagine what it must be like to be a, a woman on the internet. Mm. To things like this are routine. Yeah. It was very jarring. And then I just shut down. <laughs> I shut down the whole thing very, very quickly. So that was a fun experiment. And I remembered why I had closed DMs in the first place. I thought it'd be a cool way to talk and interact with people. And for sometimes it was, but there's a few that really have something they think that you want to see. Terrible. Terrible. How should people, for both of you, if people want to give you feedback or just converse with you, do you just prefer it on Twitter? Do you prefer it over email? How do you like to interact with people? Yeah. I mean, I tend to respond to most of the at replies on Twitter. I mean, I really do try to make a point to respond to most of the ones that are asking constructive things and have a real question or providing real feedback. I generally try to reply to most folks. That's always a good way. It's probably the best way to to get at me. Renee, how about you? Yeah, I'm exactly the same because I feel like, like with a DM, you tend to get very specific questions and problems that almost always can be asked on open Twitter. And I don't know all the answers. So when you ask on Twitter, other people see it and can contribute to the conversation and everybody learns and benefits from it. And also the tolerance for sending John eggplant pics is way lower on public (laughs) Twitter than it is on DMs. That is true. So like pre-filters. Same here. Hit me up on Twitter. YouTube comments is also another great place. I'm always checking that. But that's it. That was a lightning round. I want to thank Renee Ritchie for joining us this week. Oh, thank you. I'm sure we'll be having you back again, especially as we head into what I assume will be Apple iPhone season. I mean, we don't know in the world we yeah. live in today when things are going down, but I assume within the next two to three months, we'll have a lot of things to talk about in the iOS slash iPhone slash Mac world. As yeah. Apple said, we have Silicon Max coming this year. Renee, let people know where they can find you before we get out of here. Oh, yeah. I'm incredibly boring or incredibly consistent. So just Renee Ritchie, uh, twitter.com slash Renee Ritchie, <laughs> instagram.com slash Renee Ritchie. The best place right now is probably youtube.com slash Renee Ritchie. We will put links down in the show notes. And that is it for this edition of Geared Up. Thank you so much for listening. Of course, you can catch John and I on YouTube. I'm at youtube.com slash gear live. And John is at youtube.com slash John for Lakers. Feel free to head over and subscribe to our channels to stay up to date on all the latest tech. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to Geared Up in your favorite podcast app if you haven't done so already. Just search Geared Up, that's two words, not one, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Overcast, or really wherever you choose to listen. If you like what we do, please consider leaving us a rating and review. It really helps other people find the show. Geared Up is a Gear Live podcast, and you can see more from us at GearLive.com. Thank you so much for listening. For John Rettinger, I'm Andrew Edwards, and we'll catch you in the next episode.